Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm KQED Politics Editor Scott Schaefer, in for Alexis Madrigal. San Quentin is the oldest and possibly the most infamous prison in California, home to death row inmates like Richard Allen Davis, who killed Polly Klass. Well, now Governor Gavin Newsom wants to reimagine the prison, transfer the hundreds of condemned inmates there to other maximum security facilities in the state, and transform San Quentin into a model of rehabilitation and second chances for inmates who earn it. What will that look like? And how realistic is it? That's coming up next after this news. Good morning and welcome to Forum. I'm Scott Schaefer in today for Alexis Madrigal. San Quentin Prison. It's an infamous institution, and it's where inmates condemned to death are sent to await executions, although there has not been one there for 17 years. Since it's in the Bay Area, it's also known for a rich array of programs run by nonprofit organizations and others, all aimed at preparing inmates who are not on death row for life on the outside. Well, as you may have heard, Governor Newsom wants to transform San Quentin to, in his words, reimagine what prison means with an emphasis on rehabilitation, job training, and giving the people housed there the tools they need to make better choices once they are released. Here is how the governor described it. We want to be the preeminent restorative justice facility in the world. That's the goal. San Quentin is iconic. San Quentin is known worldwide. If San Quentin can do it, it can be done anywhere else. We say it all the time. Once a mind is stretched, it never goes back to its original form. This is about stretching people's minds about what we're capable of doing and reducing recidivism in this state. It is a bold idea with plenty of possibilities, but also potential pitfalls and problems. Joining us now to talk about all that and more, Anita Chabrier. She is a columnist with the Los Angeles Times and has been writing on this topic uh, for the last, uh, well, for, for covering the, the the issue of criminal justice for a long time, but she kind of broke the story a few weeks ago. Anita, welcome. Thanks for having me on. Also, Tanish Hollins is executive director of Californians for Safety and Justice, also co-founder of, of SF Black Wall Street and vice chair of, of SF African Americans Reparations Advisory Committee. Tanish, good to have you with us. And you are out there with the governor. I want to ask you about that when that announcement was made. And also with us, Tan Tran, Policy Associate with Ella Baker Center for Human Rights, also formerly incarcerated at San Quentin. Tan, good to have you with us. Absolutely. 
Let me begin with you, Anita, because you have been covering this story. Uh, what's your understanding of what this entails? We heard the governor there with a very high-minded, high-minded sort of description of it. What would you add? Well, I would say that right now it's aspirational, uh, which is not a bad thing. You have to start someplace. But this first year is really a $20 million sort of exploratory um, effort to figure out exactly what it would look like. But the goal is to transform all of San Quentin, the entire prison, into a new model, which would make it the largest facility in the country to do that and really make it a leader in, in changing how we think about criminal justice. And as I said, there is already a lot of, uh, of that kind of programming there. How would what the governor is describing be different? This is really not about programming. And I think that that's sort of the it's really hard to wrap your mind around what he's talking about without actually seeing it. But it's not just so much that, oh, we're going to offer programs or you're going to be able to get, you know, job training or things like that. It's a whole different mindset for corrections. It's a mindset, not that we're locking people up to punish them, but that we are. Uh, giving them the opportunity to become a better citizen. Hmm. And that is just a, a different way of going about it. And it involves a different relationship with the guards. And it, it involves a different relationship with all of us um, looking at folks who are incarcerated as people who are going to come out and be our neighbors. And Tanish, you were there with the governor, as I mentioned. Uh, tell us what the mood was like there that day. And what, what, what are your hopes for this, uh, as, as Anita describes it, an aspirational idea? Yeah, it was a very interesting tone. You, know, you had individuals who are currently incarcerated, currently housed there, uh, a number of state officials, a lot of community stakeholders, survivors, all in the same space. Uh, and it was very interesting um, to hear the governor present this vision of something that California has never seen before. There are a lot of questions that folks had, but uh, I think the commitment was there. Um, and I think it gave people a sense of hope of seeing something different. You said survivors were there. Do you, you mean uh, crime victims and their family members? Yeah. And, mm -hmm. and how, I mean, obviously, there's a very wide spectrum of who those folks are. But what are you hearing from people who, you know, either have been victims themselves or had family members perhaps killed about this whole idea of rehabilitation first? Well, I'm a survivor myself. Um, I lost two brothers to gun violence. I've also had family members housed in San Quentin. Um, you know, no survivor, survivors are not a monolith, right? Everyone has a right to define for themselves what justice and accountability should look and feel like, but we have a system that doesn't support that, doesn't give us enough options. So, you know, there's a lot of different feelings that individuals have about what the governor's proposing for San Quentin. It's not going to be a one-size-fits-all, but I think that the idea is that we see better outcomes where people are not going to be victims of crime in their community because people are coming home with more opportunities with their underlying issues being addressed. Tan, you were uh, in San Quentin. I think you got out almost a year ago now. Uh, what What are your thoughts about this as someone who was on the inside uh, as as an idea, as a vision? Like, what does it is it is it exciting? Is it are you skeptical? All of the above? Yeah, like you named. I'm feeling a little bit of all the above. Yeah, because one, I left about ten months ago. Now I was released ten months ago in May last year. And when I was released last year, the culture at San Quentin was actually, we need to get tougher on people here at San Quentin. The culture from the correctional officers down was, we need to bring prison back to San Quentin because 
people, they believe that people at San Quentin were too privileged with all of the access to programming. So I think that there's a disconnect going on with what you know was being proposed and what's happening on the grounds. So like as much as I'm excited that we're we're trying to envision something new and give people the services that they need so they can return healthy human beings, I'm excited about that part, but I'm deeply concerned about the implementation. So that's that's kind of the the tightrope that I'm walking in emotions for that. And and so the prison guards at Quentin, you said that they felt inmates were too privileged, meaning what? That they should not have access to so many of these kinds of rehabilitative programs or that they were too easily available? Like, what does that mean, too privileged? Yeah, absolutely. Both of those things, right? Because at San Quentin, at least before the pandemic, there was about 80 programs available there, 80 self-help programs helping people uh, deal with their trauma, work through their childhood trauma, and uh, to be able to return home as healed individuals. And they were not a fan of that. The correctional officers were not a fan of that because these programs were largely led, like you named in the beginning, by community members in the community, right, who volunteered their time to come in. And they're like, all they did not like that people were investing time into these inmates, as they would say, yeah. right? So, um, yeah, there was a lot of anger from correctional officers there. And I definitely want to give uh, super shout outs to uh, the, the few and far between amazing correctional officers who genuinely cared about people in there. But the difficulty for them was that they were the minority. The majority of the correctional officers did not want to see people having programming, did not want to see people with opportunities. They were upset about that. So because they were the, the majority, the minority of like correctional officers who genuinely saw us as humans, who really wanted us to get the help that we needed, uh, their voices were drowned out. So yeah, that was, the, that was kind of the culture going on there. Yeah, and I know that Utah uh, went to Norway, which is kind of a template for this, and I want to ask you about that in a moment. But Anita, you wrote about that in your L.A. Times column uh, as well. What is this Norway-Scandinavian model that the governor seems to be inspired by? It's really the idea and the practice that the majority of people who come into prison are going to come out again. And right now what we have in the U.S. Is, is we've sort of forgotten that. We send people to prison and we don't really do a great job of thinking about how that they're how they're going to come out. But in Scandinavia, the idea is this is this is the chance to intervene. This is the chance to take someone who maybe doesn't have the skills to be a good neighbor or to be a law abiding citizen and give them those skills. And that really uh, involves changing the culture with inside inside the prisons. And, and to go uh, to what Chan was just saying about the guards, you do see, e even at, at Chester in Pennsylvania, the prison that I visited, you do see the on-the-ground guards, um, there's a division there between those who think this is a, a new model and something to pursue and those who just think it's ridiculous and prisoners are there to be punished. And so I think that will be one of California's greatest challenges. Uh, the only thing I can say to that is that I did speak with the guards union and the leadership of the guards union is very much in favor of this as a way of increasing public safety. And so I'm going to remain hopeful in California that that the leadership of the guards union at least stays on board with this. And you're, you're saying here in California, the peace officers union. Peace officers, yes. Correctional officers. Correctional officers. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And so, Tan, uh, you, as I mentioned, you went to Norway uh, as as you're in part of, as part of your job as host of Uncuffed, which is a podcast from KALW, um, and you went there shortly after getting out. Uh, what 
did you notice? What jumped out at you when you did these tours? Of, of Is it one prison or several prisons in, in Norway? Yeah, we toured through three different prisons. I was able to go into two different ones. Um, you know, everybody who knows me will tell you I'm a very optimistic person, but I hate to be a wet blanket here. But like when I went to Norway, uh, I was really excited. And then as soon as I stepped into Oslo prison, the very first incarcerated person walked up with me he walked up to me with like desperation in his eyes. And he said, Tom, there is human rights violations going on here. He said, we're on 23 hour lockdown a day, right? And um, so that kind of like immediately painted this experience of what Norway would then look like. Um, because after that, I saw what the, the tour wanted us to see, right? Which was the pretty colors, the the flowers, the the rebuilt institutions, right? Like there, you can tell there was a significant financial investment into the infrastructure of the prison, right? And I think another thing that really stood out to me that was so different that made it made it quote unquote work better there was the the culture between the correctional officers and the currently incarcerated people. Like when I went to Bastoy Prison Island, like the first thing I saw when we got off the boat was first let me name that the ferry boat that transferred people from the island to the mainland was manned by currently incarcerated people. Mm. So that alone blew my mind. It's like, we have currently incarcerated people running boats. Mm. And then as soon as we got to the other side of the island, we saw correctional officers barbecuing with incarcerated people, uh, uh, correctional officers running a marathon with incarcerated people. Like the culture was completely different. Yeah. Right. Like, we're going to come back to that, uh, Tom, in just a moment. We need to take a break. We're going to continue this conversation about Governor Newsom's plan to convert San Quentin into a rehabilitation center for inmates. What do you think of the governor's plan? How feasible do you think it is? And if you or a loved one has been a victim of a crime or have you served time, we'd love to hear your thoughts. Give us a ring at 866-733-6786. Again, it's 866-733-6786. Or you can reach us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. Or email us if you like. It's forum at kqed.org. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. And welcome back to Forum. Scott Schaefer here this hour for Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about Governor Newsom's plan to convert San Quentin Prison into a rehabilitation center for inmates. 
and to transfer those who are currently on death row into maximum security facilities around the state. Our guests are Anita Chabrier. She's a columnist with the Los Angeles Times. Also, Tanish Hollins, executive director of Californians for Safety and Justice, and Tan Tran, policy associate with the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights and a former inmate at San Quentin Prison. We'd love to hear from you. What are your thoughts about this idea? Does it seem kind of really too far out, unworkable, or is it about time long overdue? Give us a call, 866-733-6786. Again, it's 866-733-6786. And, Tan, I want to come back to you. Um, you were At the beginning of your description of what you saw in Norway, you said you don't want to be a wet blanket, and you said that there were inmates there who said, hey, there are human rights abuses going on here. I, I wasn't quite sure. Did you mean that they were suggesting that it was all kind of a facade, that it's not really the kind of system that we've, we, we've heard it described as uh, by Anita and others, or are they just saying it's not perfect? Right. Um, I believe it's the, the former, not the latter. I believe they were telling me that it was a facade, right? And I think what it really showed me by going to Norway was that anytime when it comes to incarceration and crime and punishment, it's a very nuanced and difficult thing, right? Nothing is ever black and white. Like there's never just, there's no such thing as a good prison. And I think that's what Norway has taught us. And I think I carry that experience with me. Now that we're talking about turning San Quentin into this Norway model, I carry that same concern that, you know, it was almost dystopian. Like going to Norway was almost like, like for me, being one month out of San Quentin and then going to Norway was like stepping into a potential future of California of where we would have prettier prisons Right. And, and more softer language about how we talk about prisons. But at the end of the day, we're isolating people and punishing people and we're dehumanizing people. So I think that's one of the concerns that I carry as we talk about this thing. Anita, as part of your reporting, you went to Pennsylvania and I think you also alluded to North Dakota, unlikely place where this kind of uh, I don't know if experiment is the right word, but this you know kind of pilot project is is happening. What did you find there, and how does it differ, or how does it sync up with what uh, you know Tan is describing in Norway? You know, it, it's uh, that is a difficult question because I respect Tan's viewpoint and I respect his insights and his in his lived experience. And obviously, uh, you know, my my experience is is different. I think that what I saw in Chester. Um, Chester, Pennsylvania. Chester, Pennsylvania. They have a unit there called Little Scandinavia. Um, it's a pilot project. I think it was genuine. Um, from from my experience in in talking to the folks there, I did feel that it was different than other prison settings that I had been in. I felt that was especially true for the guards I spoke with. Um, I, I spoke a little bit earlier that there's sort of a division in the guards there. Some are on board with this, some aren't. But the ones who are in this unit really are committed to it. And they described to me a setting in which their jobs were better, in which they felt safer, in which they felt more rewarded in the work because they felt like they were helping people. And, uh, you know, being a prison, a corrections officer is a very, uh, it's a job with very poor health outcomes. Corrections officers are 30 times, 39 times more likely to attempt self-harm than, um, or think about self-harm or attempt it than, than any other profession. And so even just from from that perspective, I really felt that there was something different in that relationship between guards and inmates that I think is more productive than what we have in prisons now. Hmm. 
Well, Tanish, I wonder in that regard, do you think that this model is going to require uh, a different kind of person to be recruited to be a corrections officer? I mean, you know, what, uh, you know, what Tan is describing, what he saw, you know, inmates playing, you know, cards, barbecuing uh, with uh, with guards. Uh, you know, is that even is that it seems like you can't just talk to a, a people who are currently guards and say, OK, now you're going to do this completely different from what you've been doing for the last 20 years. Yeah, we're talking about having folks who are willing to participate in rehabilitating individuals life and seeing the hope of a different outcome. Uh, And you may not get that with folks who are so used to the traditional crime and punishment model. But we're also talking about a fundamental shift to the entire culture of accountability in our country. And, you know, San Quentin has the potential to model what that looks like to some degree. But we're talking about a real shift in the way our society looks at how we create safety, the opportunity that we have to help people rehabilitate and deal with the issues that may have brought them into the situations that brought them into the criminal justice system um, and how we prevent it from happening. Like, how do we interrupt the cycle? So, yes, it's going to take people who have a bigger commitment uh, and a better, broader understanding of what it what's going to take to achieve that. All right. I want to bring our listeners into this conversation. Give us a call at 866-733-6786. If you have a comment or question, 866-733-6786. Or if you prefer, you can reach us on social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. And let's start in the South Bay and we'll go to Rachel. Welcome. Um, Hi. uh, Thank you for having me on. Um, Our family was a victim of a murder. And our current murder or our murder is currently serving 30 years to life. And I'm just curious, how do they, how will you be choosing prisoners to go into this program? And, um, you know, are are you envisioning hardened criminals being uh, changed and brought back out onto society? That's a great question. Before I, I'm going to put that to Anita, but before, let me just ask you, Rachel, how, how do you feel about this? How does your family think about this idea? And, uh, you know, obviously not all inmates would be eligible for it, but, you know, how would you feel if, you know, somebody who committed murder, not necessarily the one who's in prison, you know, that, you, that you're familiar with, but somebody else? I mean, do you, how, how do you, what comes up for you when you think about that? Well, that's a really good question because um, our family tends to be very liberal and accepting and kind. Um, but we found that through this process, um, we, we really, you know, when, it, when a crime comes to your home and something so severe as a murder, um, your views, I mean, you, there's a certain level of forgiveness and hopefulness that you have in humankind. But in general, um, it, it, it's a tough thing to kind of put to your mind to to begin to understand that this particular person could be, um, I mean, just knowing the case more intimately, sometimes there's no hope for people. Sometimes they just have some mental incapacity that that makes them impossible to be functioning members of society. Yeah. Um, Denise, I want to come to you, actually, as someone who also is, you know, the family member of, of crime victims. How do you wrap your head around that that, that notion? I mean, it's difficult. Um, for one of the murders that happened in my family, there is someone who is currently 
incarcerated. He's not at San Quentin. But I think about if this opportunity were ever to be extended to someone like him, what would that mean? And I think about a couple of things. One, the justice system is never going to give justice to my family, even with a prosecution conviction and a long sentence. The damage has been done. Um, it's irreversible, and it will go on for generations. Um, but in my opinion, the best way to achieve justice is to prevent something like this from happening again. So if it means that an individual who will eventually be released to society has the opportunity to get the kind of mental health, behavioral health support, addiction treatment, deal with unaddressed trauma, and then come home and maybe even uh, better parent their own children, you know, bring back um, what they've learned into their family, into their society to prevent more harm from happening, then to me, I can accept that. Um, it will never bring the closure that we deserve, and I think many victims feel that way. But this is a broader understanding of what it takes to interrupt the cycle of crime from happening again and again and again, and I think that's something we all want. And Anita, let's go to, to Rachel's original question, which is who would be eligible? What would the criteria be, and how, how's it going to be developed? Uh, well, first and foremost, Rachel, I, I'm incredibly sorry for the your loss and the suffering that your your family will continue to endure from it. In in Chester, and my understanding from what the governor said in California, this would be a program that is is open to everyone, uh, what we consider violent crime or, or not. Uh, one of the gentlemen I spoke with in Chester had committed a murder at age 16. They do it by lottery there. It's just a straight lottery. As long as you are sort of in good standing uh, with your behavior in the prison, you go into the lottery and anyone is eligible. And that's sort of the philosophy behind it is that anyone can um, benefit from it. But one thing I really wanna stress is that this is in no way an early release program. Uh, no one is saying if you do this program, you're gonna earn credits and get out early or anything like that. You still serve your sentence. It's just a different way of serving that sentence. But isn't it, couldn't it also be one of the considerations that a parole board takes up is, oh, they've gone through this center. They've, they're, they're, you know, they've done this programming and therefore, I don't you know, yeah. Uh, sorry, I, I don't think so because like I said, it depends on how we do it. It's a, it's a lottery um, in in Pennsylvania. So you don't really get credit for, for something. It's not like you're earning it. It's not like an honor dorm or an honor unit where your good behavior has gotten you there and you have gone through certain steps to get there and then therefore qualify for credits. Uh, if this did follow Chester or Pennsylvania and it was just open to everyone, then I, I think what you accomplish inside the unit just like what you accomplish in any other prison unit would be taken into account, but simply being a part of this would not um, mm. reduce your sentence. You say it would be open to everyone. Do you, do you mean death row inmates as well? So in in Pennsylvania, uh, they began it with lifers. Well, and that, but that's different. Lifers and death row are two different things, right? Or is right. it life without I, possibility I of parole? Well, it, for some of these gentlemen, it was life without possibility of parole. They're they're in for the duration. And, and Tom might be able to speak better to this. But the idea is, is that some of those people, mostly men at this point, because, you know, we haven't really expanded this to women in the U.S. Um, most of those gentlemen are coming to terms with the fact that they will spend the rest of their life in prison and in some way provide some kind of stability or perspective for for younger inmates. And so they're they in at least in Pennsylvania, they're seen as a really beneficial part of the program because they can provide some perspective and stability. 
Rachel, I'm going to let you go. It sounds like you're open-minded about this, but maybe going to be keeping a close eye on this idea of uh, inmates having this rehabilitation center. Is that fair? Yeah. Thank you for your time. I appreciate it. And I think your question about how parole um, boards take a look at being in those programs is a good question. Um, I don't want to say that once you create a murder, you can't go on to live a fulfilling life, but um, certainly someone who's 16 in murders versus someone who's 45 in murders are two different types of people and, you know, have a lot of life. I, I don't know. It's an interesting program. Of course, we want people to be treated fairly anywhere they are, but, um, boy, I, it's a, a big hill to climb. Yeah. All Thanks right. Thanks for your time. Yeah. Thank you very much, and all the best to you and your family. We've got a lot of listener comments here. Uh, one writes, as a former corrections officer from the U.K., rehabilitation is an integral part of incarceration. We can hardly expect the parolees and, and release people to, quote, stay straight if we deny them the tools that will allow them to do so, especially where a prior felony conviction prevents access to employment. If they have no means of earning a living, what else can we expect but uh, recidivism? And then another listener writes, as a former corrections, oops, I'm sorry, that's the same uh, comment there. A listener says, "Um, I find it interesting that Governor Newsom is speaking about reimagining San Quentin, yet he is allowing ICE to participate in deportations of people coming out of prison who have lived in California their entire lives. Double punishment goes against this vision of a different prison industrial complex, and it should be part of this change. And then a listener tweets, San Quentin is a money pit. The place should be demolished for open space or housing, design and build a transition center somewhere else. And, uh, you know, Tan, as someone who spent quite a few years at San Quentin, tell me, what would it take, just like in terms of the physical structure, to create the kind of center that the governor is uh, is describing? Yeah, first let me describe the cells that so the cells there at San Quentin are four by nine, right? So that's basically a tiny closet. And one of the things we used to say uh, amongst the incarcerated people at San Quentin was that, you know, the dogs in Marin County get treated better than the incarcerated people at San Quentin in regards to how we're being housed. So one of the biggest things first, right, is that we need to reduce the population at San Quentin. Right now we have people uh, in double cells. So in those four by nine cells, there are two people in there crammed and there's literally no space to walk around. Like two people cannot walk on the floor at once, right? Like to be able to move in the cell, one person will have to lay down on his bed so the other person can just scrape by. Right. So one of the biggest things and recently I was just speaking to some folks currently incarcerated in San Quentin about three days ago. And they were telling me and I asked them myself, I'm like, what do you feel needs to be done for this to be implemented? Right. And the biggest thing they said, you have to reduce the population at San Quentin. Right. You have to reduce the population. And the only way to do that meaningfully is by safely releasing people who have served their time, people who have done the work to rehabilitate, which is hundreds hundreds if not at least 1,000 people at San Quentin, right? Because when I was incarcerated there, there was plenty of people who have done the work and were ready to come home, right? So I think that was the biggest thing that needs to be done to be able to implement this properly or in a meaningful way is to reduce the population, make those cells single cells, right? And then that would be a great first start. All right. I want to go back to the phones. Again, the number to call, 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. And let's go to Sam, I think, in L.A. Sam, welcome. 
Is Sam there? Sam is not there. Let me read some other comments here. Uh, Lukia writes, the only way a real change can happen, in my opinion, is by having both prisoners and guards heal from their own personal and generational trauma. This healing is somatic. It changes the autonomic nervous system so that safe connections between people can happen. And then another listener tweets, when I saw a Michael Moore film which featured one of these prisons, I thought it was a great concept with people complaining about crime and our current system, uh, does not seem to be rehabilitating most prisoners. I'm all for this new approach, as long as it's properly funded. And Anita, funding. Uh, The governor has put $20 million of seed money into his uh, proposed budget for the coming fiscal year. Um, What is your sense? There aren't a lot of details about this. One of the things we know is that there's going to be some kind of a, a group, an advisory group of public safety experts, crime victims, and others um, to kind of guide this process. But what's your understanding of how it's going to unfold in the coming year, assuming the legislature goes along with it, which they probably will? Uh, Tanisha might actually be a better person to ask that. But my understanding, I mean, $20 million is, is what they call budget dust, right? It's it's a very small amount of money. Um, so this really isn't, this $20 million isn't about actually creating the change. It's about creating the plan. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, part of creating the plan is figuring out how you're going to create the plan. This is a very, we're starting with small steps here. So I think that this coming year is really about just figuring out what this actually looks like. And Tanisha, are you going to be part of that advisory committee or would you, I assume you'd like to be? I'd like to be. I haven't received a formal invitation yet, but I think it's implied from being there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and what's your understanding of what that process is going to be like? Uh, Will, for example, inmates be part of it? Not formerly incarcerated folks, but actually people who are at San Quentin or some other uh, facility now. And you may not know. It may not be decided yet. Yeah, I don't think it's been decided yet. Um, But from the governor's announcement and the folks who are in the room, it seems like everyone is involved in the process and informing what it should look like. Um, I also know that the timeline is pretty aggressive because the governor hopes to achieve this during his term. Um, And he had all the the full cabinet of secretaries there from different departments to support that. So, um, Yeah, lots of unanswered questions. That's Mm -hmm. just one of many. All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation about a possible new future for San Quentin Prison, looking more like a rehabilitation center. We're going to continue the conversation, and we want you to be part of it. Give us a call at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. Or check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. And welcome back to Forum. Scott Schaefer here this hour for Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about a plan to possibly transform San Quentin Prison from an infamous institution into one that promotes rehabilitation. Our guests are Anita Chabrier. She's a columnist with the L.A. Times. Also, Tanish Hollins. She's director of Californians for Safety and Justice. And Tan Tran, policy associate with the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights, also a former Uh, inmate at San Quentin Prison. Uh, I'll give you the number one more time. It's 866-733-6786. And we're going to try once again to go to Sam in L.A. Welcome. Good morning. Hey, good to have you. Go ahead. So my name is Sam Lewis. I'm the executive director of ARC, the Anti-Recidivism Coalition. Uh, In 2019, I actually had the opportunity to go to Norway with uh, three of the top uh, correctional corrections officials in the, uh, from the California Correctional Peace Officers Association, a number of legislators, in, and uh, the Secretary of Corrections at that time, then Ralph Diaz, and another formerly incarcerated person. Uh, we visited multiple prisons. We sat and went through trains with uh, the Norwegian Guard uh, correctional officers. And the thing that I learned and saw was that we can transform the system in California and I will say uh, a, a great interview you might want to do is with uh, uh, Glenn Staley and even uh, the gentleman who will be replacing Glenn, who are in agreement that this is something that's possible to do, not just in San Quentin, but throughout the state of California. There are some places like Valley State and North Facility uh, at Solidarity Correctional Facility that, that are examples of some of the things that can really change in the system. It's a cultural change. But it's not just a cultural change. In some instances, the, the structures, to some extent, uh, uh, can be transformed into a more home-like environment. Hmm. I think the most important piece to understand is that the programming has to be available and investment to help people heal, to make sure that people have training and vocations, to make sure that people are able to explore their trauma in order to be prepared to come home. And Sam, I'm wondering, you said you sat in on the training. That's really interesting. What was the training like? And, you know, I don't know if you can if you can really generalize, but did it seem like a different kind of person was doing that work in Norway than than you see here in California? I think I think what we all saw was that the way Norwegian Corrections does it is they they attempt to first like when when there's a, a person that say a person that's incarcerated is escalated. The first attempt is is to is to verbally de-escalate before moving higher to to a point where you have to actually use say pepper spray or anything like that. It's just it's a reverse of how it's done, and it's based on training. Mm. Uh, but but not only that, it's a cultural shift. And and if the cultural shift is done right, like this can transform not just San Quentin but our entire uh, corrections uh, uh, program. And I say that from two perspectives. First. I'm formerly incarcerated. I spent 24 years in prison. I came home 11 years ago in 2000, January 12, 2012. Currently, we run programs in every single state prison throughout the state of California that are run by formerly incarcerated lifers. And so we run a program that, that's called the Hope and Redemption Team that runs different curriculums inside these facilities. 
and we've been able to watch the cultural shift as we go in. So it's possible, but all stakeholders have to be invested. And I think the governor being the, the top stakeholder that's invested, the secretary of corrections, the wardens and corrections officials, including the leadership of the CCPOA, are key to making this happen. Yeah. Ton, I'm wondering what you think of uh, what Sam is saying there and also this idea of a cultural shift. I mean, you were saying that, uh, you know, by the time you got out, the guards, some of them, some of the corrections officers were critical of the programming there. I mean, is that is that a red flag for you as you think about converting San Quentin into something like the, like what the governor's describing? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I definitely agree with Sam. Like, it's going to require a complete cultural shift. And talking about red flags, like like I named earlier, I spoke to some currently incarcerated people at San Quentin days ago, right? And they were sharing with me that they already are facing retaliation from the correctional officers due to the Norwegian announcement. So since the announcement, correctional officers have been ramping up searches. They've been like uh, doing what are called 115s, which are basically write-ups for punishment, which can extend a person's time. So now like that's what's going on on the grounds right now, right? So like just to name a, a disconnect about what's going on top to bottom. So yeah, like, I definitely agree with Sam and, and I definitely agree with the sentiment too. Like this, if it's done right, this could be implemented in any prison. In California, right, and it should like the the ideology of it that people should be treated as returning neighbors. If we truly care about public safety, right, like fifty percent of people who come home commit another crime, and we can stop people from committing crimes when they come home. That's safer communities. That's yeah. public safety. Yeah. So, an investment in people, I definitely believe that's the way to go. Yeah. All right, Sam. Thanks so much for joining us uh, with your comments, and thanks for the work you're doing too. It sounds really important. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Yep, you bet. All right, let's go now to, uh, we'll go across the bay to Alameda. And Sarah, you're next. Hi, thank you so much for this important program. I would like to share that being in workforce uh, development, I have worked with uh, formerly incarcerated, including those who have thought uh, they were inside forever. And these programs are typically successful because we work with individuals one at a time, respecting their goals. Uh, we recognize the importance of esteem, uh, confidence, um, recognizing um, empathy, and step-by-step step helping them to once again, prepare for, look for, obtain, and retain employment. So I'm very excited about the potential for this program. What does it mean to somebody who does that kind of work, Sarah, to, to rehabilitate somebody? Like what, uh, what do you need? What, what do you need when you come out, especially if, you, if you've been in for a decade or more, to, you know, to really stay away from that life of crime, to make yourself a productive citizen, and just to survive? Thank you so much. Um, and as I said, I've even worked with those who thought they were inside forever, and they came out after 20 years. Uh, so the step-by-step -step has to do with, um, first of all, when they have an opportunity with an employer not to make excuses, what they did is in the past, they're looking toward the future. Um, clearly, they're going to have something to offer the employer. There's going to be a good match, and that's what we do in terms of helping to assist. Uh, you know, in Oakland, there's ban the box, and there's the movement to ban the box. Look at people. Which means not having to disclose that you have been convicted exactly, of a felony. Exactly, yes. Yeah. 
um, and looking at people for their qualifications before you find out their background. And also, I train workforce development professionals, and um, at times I've had to remind my um, those who are in workforce development not to make up stories, uh, to push people toward, um, you know, once again, making up these stories about what they've done in the past because it's going to come back to bite them. You know, there'll be discrepancies that will come up. So that's not helpful uh, to job seekers. And like other people have said, clearly, once people are released, how are we going to prevent them from behaving such a way that's going to put them back inside? They need to have something to offer others. And we are talking about community involvement and improving the community as a whole, as everybody um, can be productive in the community, uh, with their families, with the people with whom they come into contact, how to handle the stress on the job. That's one of the, uh, the aspects that I've always emphasized, yeah. uh, dealing with stress and anger management and all of that. Yeah. Well, Sarah, thanks so much for the call, and thanks for the work you're doing. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Um, Tanish, let me ask you uh, this idea of public safety. <laughs> you know, what, what does it mean in, in, in regards to this program versus the way we're doing things now? I mean, obviously, as you know, other, others have alluded to, there's a there's a pretty still a pretty high rate of recidivism. People go, they violate parole, they go back to prison. Well, I, uh, and there's a good reason for that. You know, people who come into contact with the criminal justice system, uh, when they have a criminal conviction, they face over forty thousand legal restrictions, legal barriers to employment, housing, participating in their children and families' lives, taking on different roles in societies, uh, starting their own business. I mean, the limit the limitations uh, are huge. Uh, And, you know, folks are restricted to being in environments where they have no opportunity or very limited opportunity. Um, They come home from jail or prison with very little resources. I think the gate money is $200. And many people are restricted from living with family members and individuals. They don't want to risk their housing or employment situations. So what is a person to do? Um, Even with the best intentions, with those kind of barriers in front of them, it's very highly likely that someone is going to recidivate or end up in a situation where they're vulnerable. Um, And I think that's what we're trying to prevent. The only way for us to do that is to get serious about dealing with the underlying issues to better prepare people for a safe return to society. And then also work on clearing up those legal barriers so they have a real pathway back to citizenship. That is how we achieve public safety for everyone. Right now, that pathway doesn't exist. Um, But you've heard folks calling in, whether it's from the workforce perspective or organizations like ARC or California for Safety and Justice, Ella Baker, that is the work that we're all involved in, creating this pathway to public safety by removing barriers for individuals who have had those lived experiences but have taken seriously the commitment to rehabilitate their lives. Lots of interesting comments from our listeners, including Dan, who writes, can you cite what specific activities and classes help inmates change as people? Tom, that's a good one for you, I think. Absolutely. Yeah, something that was unique at San Quentin for me was I was a part of the film program called Fourth This Productions, right? And on the inside, it taught me how to utilize film as a storytelling tool, but also an introspective tool, right? Like by understanding character development and understanding like how people become people, it helped me look at myself and like, all right, how did Tan become the way I am, right? I had to look at from my first experiences, first in foster care as a child, and then going through juvenile hall and the probation system as a teenager like i had to look at myself and understand the traumas that created the character 
that was that became the person who was incarcerated. So like these are that's just one example, but there's programs like Roots, Restoring Our Original True Selves, which was about culture, history, and identity for Asian Pacific Islanders, right? And we had to understand intergenerational trauma. I had to understand the trauma that my mother went through during the Vietnam War to when she immigrated to America and in what why she became addicted to drugs and left me in the foster care system. So like these are the type of programs that are like holistic from a range of like culture, history and identity to hard skills like film, right? So it's like, yeah, there's, there's a whole slew of programs like I named before the pandemic at San Quentin, there was about 80 programs going on at any time. Yeah. So like, yeah, this is a range of them. Yeah, and I, I've been to San Quentin, I've been to other prisons, I've talked to lifers who've gotten out, and one of the phrases I've heard many times is, hurt people, hurt people. <laughs> and Tom, that's kind of what you're saying, is that people who have been abused, raised in dysfunctional families, victims or witnesses to violence when they're growing up, that has an impact on people's behavior. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and that's that's why it's so important that that we get this thing right. If we're going to do it like let's do this program right, because this has the potential of helping so many people heal, return safely home. Right. And ultimately make safe for communities. So here's another listener comment. Michael writes uh, Newsom's vision for San Quentin is admirable as someone who participates in one of the many community based programs there, I think. Uh, the more such programs, the better. But there's a big obstacle to achieving a vision of European-style prisons, and that is the physical plant itself. San Quentin is an old pen, the kind you see in old black-and-white movies, steel bars, small cells, as you were describing, Tan. Uh, by contrast, the European model prisons are built like college campuses with individual cottages and individual rooms that are designed to promote socialization and participation that objective is impossible in a physical plant designed with harsh punishment in mind. And Anita, let me bring you in on that because, you know, Americans have a particular attitude about crime and punishment. And I remember years ago in San Francisco, there was a new jail being built next to the Hall of Justice. And one of the columnists got a hold of this story that there was a piece of art or a fancy rug, and they called it the glamour slammer. You know, like people don't <laughs> want nice things in prison, you know, I mean, so in addition to changing the attitude of the system, there seems to me there's got to be some change among the voters, you know, and people who can, you know, can can make decisions about these things at the ballot box. I think that's absolutely, absolutely true. And, and I was in San Francisco at that time, too, and remember that well. Uh, this is a public safety conversation. And I think that that's where we really need to center it so that the general public can can understand what we're talking about. The fact is, is that what we do now is failing. As we've talked about, people come out of prison and the majority of them commit another crime. So no matter how terrible a prison is, it is clearly not contributing to public safety. So ultimately, for me, this is selfish. I have kids. I want them to walk to the store. I want them to live in this community and be safe. I want to, to not worry when they're out at night or out downtown. We need to create a system that allows people to come out with the skills and opportunity to do something other than commit crime. And that's really what the Scandinavian model is about at its heart. And I think that if people can embrace that or understand that or even just give it a little leeway, then, then that's a win for all of us. All right. Let's see if we can get another caller in here. Uh, Murphy in San Francisco, you're next. Welcome. 
Hi. Yeah, I'm an activist that is really involved in uh, public education, and I view this as a public health issue. And it's amazing to me that the prison system is so far behind on the behavioral science. And I loved uh, Sam's comment in regard to the cultural shift that needs to happen, because that is actively happening within our schools. Now, it's not perfect, but the idea of excluding children and excluding people socially in order to help their behavior is old, dead, not based in science. And it creates mental health problems. It creates antisocial behavior. The fact that we still have solitary confinement is just bonkers to me because it's just not, it's not real. It's not a solution. And the public does need to come along and understand that these new methods are based in science. And and I feel like the public does understand that when it comes to school children, hmm. but they need to make the leap in the continuation of public health into adulthood. Yeah, Thank gr- you. great point. Thanks so much for that, uh, Murphy. Appreciate it. Uh, getting to the end of the hour, let me ask each of you, starting with you, uh, Tan, uh, what are you going to be looking for? What are you hoping for, you know, in the coming years as this plan, you know, there's, get some, some meat on the bones here? Yeah, I think the very first thing is that we, we need to be talking to the people most impacted by this change, and that's the currently incarcerated people at San Quentin in regards to what's going to work. Right. Because like I named, there's a clear disconnect between what's happening on the grounds and what's happening in, in administration. So for like the biggest thing is one, amplifying the voices of the currently incarcerated people at San Quentin. And two, the only real solution is to decarcerate. We have to right now there's a hundred thousand people incarcerated in our system and there's only eighty thousand beds. Hmm. What does that mean? That means we yeah. need to release around twenty thousand people for this to even be uh, at an even equal space. So I think that's what I would yeah. like to see. Anita, what about you? Accountability and transparency. I think that this program has a lot of promise uh, and a lot of pitfalls. And the only way to make it work properly is if, is if we are transparent at every step and bring the public along with this culture shift and demand accountability from those who are leading it. Tanisha, you're going to give you the last word. It's 100% about shifting uh, our cultural understanding of what accountability should look like and really, really digging deep on the rehabilitation. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to see what uh, happens as this begins to unfold. $20 million in the budget. As Anita said, that's decimal dust. You know, that's not very much money, but it is something. We'll see how it gets used, how it gets implemented. Thanks to all of our guests this hour, Anita Chabrier from the LA Times, Tanish Hollins, from Californians for Safety and Justice, and Tan Tran, a policy associate at the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights. Thank you all so much for a very important and interesting conversation. Forum is produced by Blanca Torres, Grace Wan, and Jennifer Eng. Marlena Jackson Rotondo is our engagement producer. Judy Campbell is lead producer. Our engineer is Danny Bringer. Our interns are Lulu Ralda and Jericho Reininger. Our vice president of news is Ethan Toven Lindsay. And our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Scott Schaefer in today for Alexis Madrigal, who returns on Tuesday. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum ahead for. Uh, with me to Kim, rather. Stick around. Thanks for listening and keep listening. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, 
the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.